Welcome to The Look Back, the newest podcast hosted by former journalist turned media executive and host Keith Newman. The Look Back provides insights, tips, and maybe a few laughs during a free-flowing conversation on that roller coaster ride that reflects the past, present, and future of the Silicon Valley and tech economy. So, hey, here we are. Tiffany, welcome to The Look Back. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me. I am thrilled to be here, Keith. Oh, you're so nice. It's great to see you. Great to see us uh, in this post-pandemic era, which is funny because from a work standpoint, you know, what happens in this sort of reset where we look into the world and we're going back to work? You have a phenomenal opportunity, I mean, opportunity, a job at Salesforce and the opportunity of helping define um, what works, what work looks like in this sort of um, next phase of, I hope it's the next phase of post-pandemic. We're not quite through it yet, right? But how things in the, in the work from home, remote work, and uh, you know Salesforce, which just acquired Slack, um, and how they're trying to change the conversation. What are your thoughts as, as you look into people going back into an office and back into a more normal work-life uh, balance? Yeah, so, so I'd start by saying that, um, I think that the pandemic has offered all of us personally and professionally, this sort of reset, like what's important to us personally, you know, and you see a lot of that translating into um, people leaving jobs, changing jobs, you know, kind of all that that's happening there. But from a business standpoint, we also saw this acceleration on investments in digital technologies for a lot of companies that were caught a little bit flat footed when the pandemic first hit that they hadn't made those investments over time. And all of a sudden working from anywhere was not something that they ever even had on their roadmap, right? Everybody had a desktop, they didn't have notebooks. Well, how do they work from anywhere if the desktop is in the office and the office is closed, right? Or they don't have access to bandwidth or you don't have the tools or you know, how do you keep business operating? And so very quickly, you know, so many organizations uh, from a research perspective said that we'd seen more digital transformation in kind of the first six to eight months of the pandemic than we'd seen maybe in the prior decade. Um, and having come from Gartner prior to joining Salesforce, I can uh, absolutely agree with the fact that I've seen much more intentional investments on things that needed to be fixed that were put off and put off. And then all of a sudden we had to do it. But the third thing out of that is um, I hope we have learned collectively and we just don't snap back to the way that it used to be and go back to the status quo that we take this, reset as uh, an opportunity, as you say, to um, reimagine what's possible in using technology, in, in leveraging the collective power of people uh, and, and tech in new ways, but also finding a better um, a balance. And I don't want to say work-life balance because I think that's impossible. You're always going to swing <laughs> kind of one way or the other. I uh, agree but, with that too, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and so I, I think that for me, it was um, really a chance for us to have uh, both personally and professionally, hard conversations about things we needed to get done. So Tiffany, it's great because you know necessity is the mother of invention. I don't know if we needed to go through a pandemic per se, but boy, it has forced everybody to um, really reconsider how they look at their employees, their functions, their roles, um, and how we manage to increase productivity in this new sort of era. What are some of the things, I mean, you, you consult with a whole bunch of companies You've talked to uh, like everyone in the world who's a mover and shaker also in the, from digital transformation to work from home. 
Um, what, what are the things you point to in, in trying to have them feel encouraged that work from home can also mean greater productivity? Well, I've worked from home for 15 years, uh, you know, kind of pre-pandemic. I haven't had an office since I left, you know, when the second I took the job at Gartner, I pretty much had been working from home. So it's been 15 years now, um, but usually it's mixed with travel. So I don't feel like I work from home, but now over the last 18, 16 months, as with everybody, you definitely feel like you work from home. Um, I think that the, how do I say this? I, I am not a fan of the hurdle is productivity. Like that, okay, well, can we get the same productivity out of our people in, yeah. at the office as we can at home? Like, is that, the, is that the hurdle we have to get over? Or is it that, wow, our employees now don't have to commute, you know, one hour or two hours each way. And so they get four hours back in their life. And so they're happier, you know, they, sh they show up, you know, uh, to work, um, with more excitement and more interest and they're more engaged. Is that the right driver? Like, have right. we reduced um, the fact that uh, we have attrition in our employee base? Are we recruiting better people? Like, you know, are, like, I don't want it to just be like, well, I could watch what my people were doing every day. So I felt better about it. And now that they're at home, I don't trust they're going to do what's right. And I think you've seen through a lot of research that many have said they've worked longer and harder during this time that they get no break and there was this acceleration uh, of burnout. And mm. that means that there is no balance, right? That it's, you know, having worked from home, I can tell you that until I moved my home office out of the house and into the garage, that I was working all the time because I would see my laptop or I'd see email come in. Now that it's literally in my garage and I, when I close that door, I'm not paying attention that I've actually gotten back way more balance but it's also because I'm not traveling. So, you know, I, 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 for those of you listening who have management um, responsibilities, I, I hope you're also looking at the soft side of productivity and not just the metrics. And then you feel like everyone has to come back to the office because that's the only way you're going to get, you know, performance right. and, and work done. And, and that's just been proven over the last, you know, year and a half that that's not the case. Yeah, that's really interesting. I feel like you know, we have the old uh, image of the boiler room sales offices and the sales models of the floor of everybody on the phones and making calls and counting our number of calls and counting our demos and all that stuff, right? What is a, what is a, um, I mean, I think it's different for every company, but I'd still love to hear your thought on creating the ideal sales um, organizational model like to drive, uh, and I know it's, gosh, probably all over the place a little bit, right, with different businesses, but how do you, how do you respond as you're talking to the CRO today? Well, I think the CRO is facing what I call and have called the seller's dilemma now for about a decade, um, and it was a play on Clay Christensen's innovator's dilemma, which is, as a sales leader, how do you ensure you're hitting numbers today, while at the same time you're transforming and optimize optimizing for the future. And sometimes as a CRO, depending how large your organization is, it's very difficult to do those things at the same time, yeah. right? It's, it's a very different thought process. It's a different cadence. It's a different mindset. It's a different metric system. It's a different, you know, there's so much differences in heads down today, this week, this month, this quarter, this year on hitting numbers versus, okay, what does my sales team of the future look like? What are the skills I'm going to need? What tools am I going to need? What kind of customers are we going to be um, you know, trying to uh, attract. 
What does my product pipeline look like? How am I going to re-swivel, you know, the way in which we go to market and recruit and train and all of the things we do, like RevOps as a new category, right? Not sales ops, but RevOps and not, you know, customer service, but customer success and not, you know, um, say, you know that, that entire sales enablement only, but really growth enablement. There is so much going on that how does a sales leader balance that? And there, and some of them will say, well, if I focus too much on the future, I won't have my job in the future to even take advantage of all the things I've actually fixed. So the smaller of an organization you're in, the harder it is for one individual to do that, right? And so when I'm having conversations with CROs, I start to dig into how much of their time is spent on both of those categories. And if they're overweighted to hitting numbers, then I know that they have a huge uh, blind spot in like getting caught flat-footed when the pandemic means we have to sell from everywhere and you haven't given mobile capabilities to your sales team. Well, you weren't making those investments because you were trying to hit numbers, right? And so it's not that I'm expecting a black swan event to happen again, but buying behavior is significantly different. So, you know, either creating a day a week or two hours a day, you know, where you can focus on those things. And if you can hire somebody who's always watching and reading and talking and, you know, talking with customers and sellers, what's happening, what can we fix? What can we optimize that you're always looking at that forward view? If you can do those two things and try to solve that seller's dilemma, you'll be in a much better position. That's awesome. Tim, I want to ask you another question. I've been thinking about (laughs) uh, talking to you for a while and and I've been waiting to ask you this. You're running your own company and you have to go hire a team, what is your criteria for that salesperson who's, I'm sorry, who's running your sales organization and how are you trying to build your team? Hmm. You know, I, um, there are sellers who are uh, intuitively fully capable of selling with very little management and guardrails. Okay. And um, that is a very different seller than somebody who is looking for structure and wants training and wants those productivity metrics, right. And wants the tools and wants to work the process so that, you know, they get better at that craft and uh, can, can sort of move their book of business forward. It would depend what kind of seller I'd want to hire, right. As my first, as my first salesperson, right? Do I want someone who's very self-sufficient or do I want somebody who wants a lot of structure and, uh, you know, um, influence on what they do every single day? And there are pros and cons of both, by the way, right? The first one is very hard to manage. They don't always listen and do things the way you want them to, but uh, they're more likely than not to hit, to hit quota. Yeah. Or on the other, that you can start to really hone in on what's working, what's not working. And then, you know, okay, now I know what I need for my second salesperson and my third salesperson and my fourth salesperson. But I would never get to that point until I understood, you know, where my product was in an adoption cycle, you know, where it was like on the Gartner hype cycle, as an example. Yeah. Where is it? Yeah. Would, should I do it directly sell or should I sell indirectly via partner? Should I hire a sales rep? Or should I recruit partners and hire a partner account manager? Like, what's the fastest way for me to, um, you know, start to get momentum and accelerate sort of sales and growth? And um, the answer to that uh, would be read my book, Growth IQ. But secondarily, I'd say, uh, ultimately, um, you need to know sort of where you are in your entire 
the context of the market and the customer set and the products and services you're selling. And then you need to identify what kind of salesperson do you want. And sometimes people will make the mistake of, I'm going to go hire the five you know, high-performing, powerful sellers from my competitors, and I'm yeah. going to bring them in and they're just going to knock it out of the park. And yeah. that, you know, that doesn't always work out uh, well. So maybe it's a little bit of a balance, both in terms of the individual and the team you're looking to, to solve for. Yeah, and, and I will tell you that, look, I, I learned this lesson uh, probably five years into my tenure at Gartner is I used to answer that question pretty confidently and quickly. That very question, which I've probably gotten, you know, a thousand times. <laughs> and, and, I, and I don't mean in podcasts, I mean from clients, right? Sure. And, then, and, and I think I did them a disservice. Mm. When, I, when I really step back is my answer would be, tell me about your market. Tell me about your competitive differentiation. Tell me about your value prop. Tell me who your ideal customer is. You, you got to tell me those inputs so I can understand the context of your, of your company and uh, of your growth goals so that I can say, okay, if that's what you're trying to accomplish, here's how I would organize your quote unquote selling organization. Because it might be a customer service organization that's selling for you. It might be a field service organization that's selling for you. It might not be a classic sales person. And so um, my answer now is different. I need to know the answers to some of those questions before I can just sort of you know, give off. And if you're listening and you're like, I was really looking for the three <laughs> things I need to do, right? I would say yeah. the first thing you need to do is understand those kind of things I rattled off. And then how do you achieve that? What's the best organizational structure? But it isn't one and done. It's not like you organize, you hire, you move on and you never revisit. It's well, but hold on. Yeah. Now it's virtual selling as things start to open back up on a global basis, you're going to go back to field selling. And so you know, then it's a hybrid again. And so you can't just leave it the way it is now. And so it's always this very fluid um, process of, of making sure you stay aligned between your customers and your company and your brand. Tiffany, that is so true. I, I really appreciate it. And this is the look back, the name of my podcast. I think when you've accomplished a lot, as you have, it's always interesting to look back and say, okay, what would I maybe do differently? What have I, what have I seen over the course of my career and maybe make it a, a pivot or a change to what I've done? Anyways, that was, a, that was really interesting. Good, good. By the way, do you get a, you get a, a commission on every time you mention Gartner? Just kidding. <laughs> Just kidding. By the way, that was a phenomenal run. I forgot where you were just prior to Gartner, but an amazing run at Gartner, an amazing run at Salesforce. And, and now you're an accomplished author. You keynote everywhere and speak everywhere. Um, what are some of the, what are some of the um, highlights that you point to over this illustrious career? Um, so there was life before Gartner. Um, I was an individual quota carrying sales rep for a small software technology company. I was the only sales rep. I was the first hire sales rep. So, um, and at the time it was focused in on the legal, uh, the legal industry. Uh, and so, you know, I was dialing a hundred calls a day to get 10 meetings to set up a, like I was, you know, playing the game and, I was reading a magazine uh, called Law Technology Product News, and I saw this ad for a value-added reseller, and I was like, what is that? And I said, let me find out more about it. And so I said, wait a minute, like they'll sell on my behalf. Like I just need to recruit them. And then they have 15 salespeople who can sell on my behalf. Like, why am I dialing for dollars? Like I'm going to go where. And so I set up the very first channel program. I didn't know what it was called at the time. Obviously, I didn't even know what a bar was. Um, 
And lo and behold, that kind of started my love affair with the indirect channel. And so I moved from that to a larger software company to a systems integrator. And then I moved to distribution. I worked for a company called Inacom, um, uh, which then ended up going bankrupt. It was a, like $6 billion uh, distributor. Um, then I worked in telco at Sprint for a moment. Then I got into the World Wide Web and I was like, you know, the Eloqua's beta client. I was um, running sales <laughs> service and marketing for yeah. um, the largest web hoster in the US. And so I learned all about selling virtually and selling the cloud and, um, you know, selling via chat and creating comp plans and setting up channel programs. And then I got a little burnt and I went and uh, ran a division of Gateway Computers um, and stood up their very first indirect channel program when the stores closed. And so I took kind of all that 15 years of knowledge of being a VAR and, and um, working in and around it to set one up for a Fortune 500 company. I built that business uh, uh, pretty well. I sort of at the time I, I left, it kind of went from zero to almost 300 million over the course of, of, of my tenure. And then I said, like, I need a break. And then <laughs> I went to Gartner. But I will tell you that in each of those roles, right, I was an individual quota carrying sales rep for software, then for hardware, then for full systems. And then I worked in distribution and then I worked for a telco and then I worked in the cloud and then I worked back into hardware only for a big tech vendor. If I had not done that, I would not have done very well at Gartner. What gave me that leg up was the fact that I had, well, I didn't do it at a big billion dollar, you know, division that I ran. I didn't have to. I knew the sort of subtle challenges that that executives would have in and around selling with and through partners and then selling directly. And it served me really well. So I got this balance of sort of practitioner and academic, um, which, you know, I very quickly could say, you know, okay, you're, you know, you got nine tiers in your channel program as a prior, you know what I mean? As a prior partner, it's probably too many. Right. And, um, you know, I was a LAR for Microsoft. So I understood selling in that big, right. I had done the deal with Gateway and CDW to get us into the direct marketer space. And so I had done a lot of things that um, gave me kind of that unique perspective. And so when I decided to write the book, it was kind of that, what did I learn along those, you know, 15, 20 years of selling, leading sales, marketing, customer service, advising, and then here at Salesforce, you know, getting an opportunity once again, to just look across the entire landscape on, on how to improve revenue growth. It's an amazing, uh, thanks for all those names, by the way. That was kind of a, a little yeah. fun, magical mystery tour for you. Um, and what a great learning experience. And the fact that you had the, the ability to roll up your sleeves, do it um, at, a, at, a, at a grassroots uh, level, and then work for the larger companies and work for some, some just some phenomenal companies to go build uh, businesses for them is, uh, you know, gave you that great boost to go do it and share it at, at Gartner, which, I mean, you kind of built a whole business for them as well in the channel space. That must have been yes. good. <laughs> well, there was, well, there was someone before me, so I don't want to yeah, say that, no, right? No, I know, you, you, but, but you're very dynamic, both as a presenter, a speaker in the boardroom. And I think it's a combination of Gartner carries a lot of great brand. Yep. And, and, you know, with it and still phenomenal for 25 plus 40, I don't know how many years, um, phenomenal brand. And then, you know, you had such a dynamic presence and, and knowledge um, that you created a, a, a huge business for them, I would imagine. And then you decided at some point, OK, this is great. Now I got to roll up my sleeves again and go do it. Not obviously at a at a, uh, a revenue level, but at Salesforce, it's almost like um, 
thought leadership meets the sales enterprise and where else would you do that but salesforce right and and it was and you, you kind of nailed it you know it's in many ways i behave as i did over the decade prior to joining salesforce you know i in in as much of an agnostic way as i possibly can with salesforce on my business card yeah. right i'm not going to recommend one of our competitors but i'm out there talking about it from a strategy perspective not the tactics of okay what tool how do i use it how do i customize it like that isn't my level of conversation, right? It's what does the sales um, force, two words, look like in the future and how are you going to organize and where do you have gaps in what you're doing today in order to improve performance um, within your sales team, but also looking at technology as a partner for a seller, like the powerful you know, uh, uh, new power couple is kind of human in tech. Yeah. Human alone isn't as effective. Tech alone is definitely not as effective. It has to be both. And so it's given me the ability um, uh, to start to have that conversation. And obviously with the Salesforce brand behind me, uh, I get access to amazing leaders and companies around the globe where it's a perfect job, right? I consistently <laughs> learn. I I'm consistently challenged to think differently. I, I always have to, you know, I've had to really hone in my asking skills, you know, to be a better asker. Uh, of questions so I could uncover what's happening, that kind of master asker, if you will, um, and then really listening so that once again, I'm, I'm looking for signals and trends and consistency in what people are saying around the globe. And lo and behold, regardless of size, industry, tenure of brand or executive, it tends to fall around kind of, you know, a half a dozen or dozen topics. You know, everyone thinks they're sure. unique um, and no offense to anyone listening, but your company is not unique. 85% of it is not unique. It's you make stuff, you sell stuff. Everybody makes stuff <laughs> and sells stuff. Yeah. And if you don't make it yourself and you resell it, whether you're a retailer of you know, toilet paper and, and hair care products, or you're reselling technology, someone else is making it, you still have to sell stuff. Yeah. So it, it's, it's all similar, even though it's different things and different price points. And yes, you could argue with me all day long that you are very unique. Um, but unless it's public sector, private sector, highly regulated, you know, not highly regulated, those are big differences. Um, but if you say CPG and FinServe is so different, maybe, but a lot of it is the same. Yeah. One of the things that comes up is the natural conflict, which I'm sure you've heard a ton of is the fight between sales and marketing and where um, where one starts and the other ends or how they work more efficiently together. Um, you know, who's providing the leads, who follows up on what, what else, you know, does that get into the minutia too much? Or can I ask you how you help um, a CRO or CEO strike a balance between his, his organization? Well, in full transparency, I bleed sales blood. So yeah. what does marketing do? I'm sorry. Do you want to define that? Well, I'm kidding. I'm totally kidding. I'm kidding, okay. Keith. I'm kidding. I'm the one with the jokes here. I'm totally kidding. Okay. okay. So marketing doesn't know what sales does. And they're like, why does sales even need to be here? We pretty much do it ourselves. Salespeople say, why is marketing? They don't even understand what we need. Like, and it's such an old conversation, but, yeah. but I will say this, um, you know, I always argue that, um, if marketing really wants to feel like they're selling stuff, carry a quota, mm. carry a quota, like, or oh. share the quota with the sales team. It very quickly changes the conversation, right? Because like, I'm trying to hit quota 
Oh, but we delivered you a thousand leads. Great. 995 of them were terrible. So you check the box and now my pipeline's empty, right? I'm not getting enough in the funnel. So you have to connect with metrics. You also need to have marketing and sales understand the value on both sides. But I think the miss in that question is customer service and customer success is the third leg of that stool. It should be a connection between marketing, sales, and customer service, right? Because that's the life cycle. You get a lead, you find a new customer, you sell it. Well, now you need to support it, upsell it, cross-sell it, and all those things that tend to happen. So, um, you know, I always worry when people bring up sales marketing and leave out customer service and customer success, I need all three. But my, you know, when I used to be in front of marketers speaking, I would ask how many of you went on a sales call in the last 30 days? And crickets, (laughs) crickets. And I said, but I, and if you go on one, I don't want you going as the marketing person. Like I want to see how my shiny presentation is, is, you know, used in real life so that I can pat myself on the back and tell everybody our stuff is amazing. I don't want you to do that. I want you to go as a new hire salesperson who's, you know, in the field training and listen in so that the customer does not know you're in marketing. Now watch when the sales rep shows that shiny presentation and the customer goes, I don't want to see slides. Like, let's just talk about it. Or yeah, I didn't read that white paper. Or, you know, I don't like when you guys do, you're going to get the truth of what's working and not working. And it's not that sales has it all and marketing has it all. It is really that those two have to work very tightly together. But if you leave customer service out of that conversation, it's a big mess. Yeah. Let me, um, let me go in a slightly different direction only because I know a lot of companies that I, that listen here um, are startups. And I know you typically focus more on larger companies, but also have a wealth of knowledge. You're starting a company. They got their A round of funding or seed investment. They're building their company. They're looking to get their first pilots or starting to get a little bit of traction. Um, What can you share with them that would be a little bit of a collegial advice here? Of course, we're already on the Salesforce platform, et cetera. Um, What would you, what would you say to that startup founder um, that, that obviously wants to see them go into a, a, a growth mode? a blitz scaling uh, mode if you can? Yeah, so uh, great question. And one of the, the hardest questions for a founder is when to hire their first salesperson, which was one of your questions sort of a few minutes ago, right? Um, what's the right time? Yeah. Because it, as a founder, no one knows it better than you. And a founder selling and going and striking up relationships and selling to a CIO if it's technology or to you know whomever it might be as your ultimate buyer, Um, There's a lot of value there, but you can't scale that at a founder level. And so, you you know, you have to figure out um, those decisions that you make early on will have huge implications to your success ongoing. Should it be direct? Should it be through a channel? You know, should it be a high power seller or should it be somebody who is a technical person? If it's a very technical sale, like you really have to understand. But going back to my little joke of you have you make stuff and you sell stuff. Like, don't think as a founder because you've made it. It's just going to sell itself. You know, it's just not going to. Yep. You know, not, you know, I'm just going to use AWS as an example. The first billion dollars that AWS made, they did not even have a salesperson. And so you could argue that that sold on its own. But there was a job to be done, a market requirement. The CIO could go and take care of it or the IT leader or, you know, um, some technical buyer could go and, and get what they needed from it. But when they wanted to scale and compete, 
against other companies that had um, arguably very similar products. There was no way you could go with no sales team against 300,000 partners and against 15,000 field sellers, right? You're not going to win. So you had to start to say, now is the time. So is it you just let the market self-serve like that AWS model I just gave, and then they started hiring, you know, as they started to gain traction and they learned what was needed? Sure. Um, but that's only if you have this kind of low touch model, you could use Tesla. They didn't have salespeople originally. People went to a website, gave a credit card, waited 18 months and proved that people will buy something $100,000 sight unseen online, right? And Amazon had done the same thing. People were spending a million dollars sometimes on compute for a day at the Super Bowl or whatever, and then, you know, uh, um, uh, pull it down after that. So it showed that people were willing to buy online. And so, you know, I think that there are lots of lessons that have come out of the last 15 months on behaviors that founders need to determine what's the product, how do people want to buy, and then how are you going to match that buyer demand um, with something in air quotes here that is your selling function. Could be marketing, could be e-commerce, could be no actual sellers, yeah. could be through a partner with a partner. It could be just a direct sales force it, and it all depends. It's interesting. Would you, would you ever jump back into a, uh, a startup or are you in a position where you're allowed to go? Uh, well, I guess you can advise startups, right? Yeah, you know, uh, it was maybe two, it was either two or three dream forces ago which is our large uh, event in San Francisco every year. This year, it's going to be hybrid in uh, four countries and uh, a little bit in person in San Francisco. Which I highly encourage everyone to check out. It's an amazing event. The best vendor event of the year. I would agree. Yeah. Um, and so uh, um, there was an announcement when we announced high velocity sales. And it was really using Einstein RAI uh, tool to say, don't call 100 people today. Just call these 10 that are more likely to buy from you. And here's the play and here's what you need to do. And for just about 90 seconds, I was like, okay, when I was selling, I was using a single user version of ACT or Goldmine. There you go. I was using an Excel spreadsheet, MS-DOS Word and Bubblegum and some Post-it notes. And I would spin my Rolodex sitting on my desk and wherever that would stop, that's who I'd call. Like there was, Okay. <laughs> But I love the visual though. Go, but I hit quota. Yeah. And I, and I think I could count on probably a couple of fingers on a quarter that I missed quota. So it wasn't often and over a 15 year period. So now I say, okay, well, hold on. Imagine what I could do with these tools, like, right. Where the tools yeah. were really helping me to focus me in on the right accounts and here's the right offer and here's what you know you can deliver to the customer and just in time training and all and so for just about 90 seconds I was like wow I could do that for like three years make a ton of money and then go back to doing what I'm doing and then I was like like is that you know I just don't know if I have it in me anymore I would rather sort of vicariously be able to sell through clients um, you know and and help them be successful um, that I'm, I'm a little bit past that but you know um, Every once in a while, I get the itch to go back and sell. Yeah. Well, you better hurry because the way we're uh, increasing our AI functionality into all of our processes and bot technology and machine learning, we just might, uh, we might do it all virtually and through, uh, through technology. Yeah, I don't agree with that uh, even a little bit. Um, there was a competing uh, analyst firm while I was still an analyst that said that 
AI would wipe out like a million sales jobs. I didn't believe it then. I, I don't believe it now. We actually see high-performing selling organizations that are using AI optimally are hiring more salespeople, not letting them go. Because as you can become more productive and generate more revenue and profit per seller, because you're using technology to help them be more successful, because the average seller spends about 66% of their time on non-selling activities, and only about 52 or 54% of your sellers are going to hit quota, there's a lot of fat on the bone that you can improve. Yeah. So if AI can give you 10% of your time back, and you can give all your sellers 10% more quota attainment, you're going to be a hero. Um, now, do I think there are some industries where um, IoT and things selling to things is more effective. Like I need a hundred widgets to build this washing machine. And my, you know, my robot only has 60 widgets. I need to order. The machine knows that and can order. Right. Like there is benefit to things like that. But the, that's why I was saying the power couple of human and tech, tech alone is not uh, always optimal. You have your outliers. So people who are listening, yes, there are some industries, there are some situations where you may not need a human. Yeah, you can automate certain little things. Yeah. Yes, and then and then on the human side where automation doesn't work, right? Okay, I understand. Yeah. Like, you know, I'm going to sell <clears throat> Boeing jets. I'm going to just do it all online on e-commerce. Probably not going to happen, right? But then you might say, I'm going to sell, you know, widgets. I could sell that on the line. There's not a lot of value putting a human in between it, right? So um, I think human and tech uh, will be the predominant model for those high-performing selling organizations uh, for the foreseeable future. Yeah, I think that's spot on too. Great. Um, I can't believe how fast the time is flying. I'm a little bit um, up against it with you, but I, I want to ask you one or two more if I can. Sure. Um, thanks. Um, so you worked in the channel for a long time, and I can't let this whole conversation go by without another dive into how that's evolving. And I still see data that shows the channel more predominant today than ever. It might be from some biased media sources that we both know, but, but it could also be that the MSP revolution and the cloud technology and everything moving in those directions is sweeping away and it, and it has more to do with an indirect sales organization. Where, where are you seeing things uh, balance out? Yeah, so I remember the day uh, really well. It was, uh, it was 2001. And I got invited to go to the um, uh, Intel's Managed Services Network Innovation Get Together in Utah. There was eight of us. It was Fusion Storm. It was us. And uh, MSP was not a term. You know, it was, I'm a reseller. I'm a value-added reseller. I'm a systems integrator. Oh, now I'm a managed service provider. Nope, now I'm a cloud service provider. Nope, I'm an aggregator. Nope, I'm an ISV kind of thing, right? And so, you know, the managed services term was uh, very early then, and I was very early in that evolution. And then I was presenting at an exchange event in uh, Florida, and uh, it was the lunchtime session. And I was up there saying, why would you want to buy a server? Just host it on our managed hosting platform. Now, this is 2002. So I just want to, this is almost 20 years ago. And that audience looked at me like I had nine heads, yeah. right? Like, blast for me, why would you say that? And I go, look, there's so much more profit and revenue in services. Like, why do you want to do break fix and roll a truck for 150 bucks an hour? Okay, now you're remotely monitoring and managing it. Okay, woohoo, but still, okay, now it's 65 bucks. Like, it's going nowhere. 
with automation. And so you either have to wrap our services. And it took me a good decade, um, you know, before uh, people started saying, oh, you know, maybe, maybe you were kind of onto something. And it wasn't that I could see through the crystal ball. It was that I happened to be working at a company that was cloud-based and I wanted to get to the channel and I knew about reselling gear. And so I wanted to shift the mindset. But I will say that a couple of things. In SMB, the channel is always going to be highly relevant, especially at the beginning of this conversation we talked about in the last 16 months, how much digital transformation has happened. The SMB market needs a lot of help. The channel has a tremendous role to play there. The last mile for uncovering and identifying what technology, how to deploy it, then support it, et cetera. I think there's still a huge opportunity for partner to partner collaboration, which we've been talking about for like 25 years. It's never taken off. I think you know a traditional systems integrator working with a traditional ISV is a great combination and some of the largest uh, resellers uh, in the world have purchased that capability for that very reason. Um, and so I, I think that um, understanding that that SMB space will always be a play. When you get into larger organizations and they have CIOs and full IT uh, um, capabilities, then you have to bring value around very specific jobs to be done. So are you going to be one that comes in and deploys an outcome of improving customer experience or employee satisfaction or you know uh, lead generation and tracking? Like you've got to pick and focus. You can't be a generalist in the enterprise. Like you have to be focused. And so pick those jobs to be done that you think you have the ability to um, own either in your town, in your area, in a sector, in a region, in a size, and then partner for the rest of it. Um, I, I still think that, you know, I'm bullish on the channel. I always will be. I think there's that last mile is impossible for so many um, tech providers um, to do at scale and to do profitably. So I don't think the channel is going away, but I think if the channel doesn't continue to evolve, um, it's going to be harder and harder for them to remain relevant. Yeah, it felt like a lot of the innovation that happened in the channel was it was, was with kicking and screaming attached. <laughs> yeah, and, I, and a lot of it, look, a lot of it was because um, the incentives and programmatic elements were not supportive of the transformation. Right. It was still about how many racks did you sell? How many desktops did you sell? How many routers did you sell? How much software licenses did you sell? <clears throat> and so it put it at conflict. Well, if you're measuring and managing me for tiers about how much I sell of legacy stuff, how do I focus on where I want to go in the future? And many partners felt it was the responsibility of the vendor to educate them, give them leads and sort of support their business, which I don't agree with, actually. Um, I, I think that they can help, but you have to be able to stand on your own and, and not rely on those vendors to keep your business afloat. Because if they make programmatic changes, we all know how well those go over when that happens. Um, partners get very upset. Um, and uh, that means that they feel uh, entitled to that kind of support from a vendor. And, and that keeps them, uh, I worry, held back from making the investments they need to make, regardless of the vendor and what they do for them. Yeah. Tiffany, I, since you're the one with access, at least a timeshare relationship with the crystal ball for all of this, what do you see as like one or two areas that you would focus on or, or areas that you see are really going to um, become more popular, get hot? Yeah, so I'd say uh, still data is an untapped market and a place where I think the channel can add a lot of value. 
There's a lot of unstructured data out, of, out there. There's a lot of disconnected data. We have a stat from Tableau, um, which we purchased a few years ago, um, that says the average enterprise has 900 apps and only 29% of them are integrated. That's a huge opportunity. Right. There's and, more and data, you know, than there ever has been. And so how do you capture it? You know, there's the, there's the saying data is the new oil. Mm -hmm. um, I agree with that, except you can't pull up to an oil rig and fill your car up and drive away. Oil has to go through the refinery, which to me is analytics. And then that refinery spits out insights, um, which is sort of the predictive insights that then is that to me is the petrol or the gasoline that powers the business. So data for data sake is not that interesting. So if you are selling, you know, data warehouses and data farms, and you're not helping them actually manage that or integrate the data or come up with a single source of truth, you know, and then then deploy analytics to analyze that for signals and then create this, you know, uh, insight engine that sort of helps guide the next best action for, you know, executives, for sellers, for marketers, for service uh, individuals. I think that has a huge opportunity. So everything around data, AI, machine, automation, prediction, uh, there's a huge opportunity. Secondarily, um, I'd say uh, this entire view around success from anywhere, that if businesses are going to um, embrace hybrid going forward to some degree, how do you keep the, your customers secure and the people up and running? And what do they need to you know, manage remote work from a technology standpoint? It was easy when you could send a, you know, an advanced replacement part to an office that it, then in IT, but now you're going to send it to someone's house and then who's going to install it? you know, or who's going to fix it or who's going to provide tech support when they're home and, oh, they don't have. So I think just around this distributed success from anywhere mentality um, provides another opportunity for helping businesses, especially again, in that SMB space, understand how they can and do that uh, safely and securely. Wow. Tiffany, that's uh, great. I appreciate the insights, really eye-opening, thought-provoking, just what I kind of expected from you. So thank you a tremendous amount. Um, I want to leave on a fun note. Um, I, I've known you for a, a long time from the Gartner days. And I know we've even ran into each other prior to that. Salesforce, I've been tracking. Growth IQ, everyone, get the book. And you're going to get a lot more value um, from, from that as well as, as um, uh, just tracking what, she's, what she continually uh, put, puts out there. But Tiffany, how would you look back on your career and say, you know what, if I push this aside and have a separate life, what would you, what would you be doing? I, I, I listen to you talk and I feel like, wow, you could be a college professor, politician, um, you could be on Broadway. <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm not just trying to be intentionally flattering, but I feel like you probably have had some of those. We all have, we all have uh, that, that secret or, or social desire with a separate life. I know I, I fashion myself as some kind of athlete, but but that day has certainly passed. Uh, what what do you think about that that you might have gone into, or if you had that um, uh, analog to look at? Um, I love to travel, and so thankfully I get to do that for for work. But I would love to um, be a photojournalist in some way. I love photography, and I love travel. So man marrying those two, and really kind of telling stories in a visual way. Cause you know, now I do it kind of in an audible way. Um, and the book was a way for me to put it on paper, but it's very different than sort of visually telling a story 
Um, when, you know, when I'm on stage, I get a little bit of that, but I think you get the point on the, on the yeah. photography side of it. Um, and, and I was born and raised in Hawaii. So, you know, I'd love to let that be my home base again. I, I go back quite a bit, um, uh, which is, which is awesome. So, uh, I'd love to make that my home base. And then I always threaten my mom that I want to run for governor in Hawaii. It's really a joke, but because <clears throat> I just, I, I think I couldn't debate because I'd be like, I, I'm not really sure what you're talking about, but. <laughs> I think there's a better way. I think Benioff would support you bringing that uh, Salesforce Ohana spirit to Hawaii. I think he'd fund your, fund your election effort. Oh, I don't know about that. But, uh, you know, uh, I would love to do more uh, with Salesforce in Hawaii, which I, which I try to do. You know, I try to, to bring it uh, there as much as I can. And, and I do quite a bit of speaking and advising to Hawaii companies because I know a lot of the uh, executives in those, in those organizations. But that, that would probably be it. And then if I, you know, really wanted to do absolutely nothing, I don't think that'll ever happen. Oh, I can see, I can see the photojournalism book and maybe a little bit of, uh, of work in Hawaii, but that, uh, that's exciting and inspiring. But I know you've gosh, had such a great run. Thanks for taking some time. I really appreciate it. Of course, Keith. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure to catch up. Thanks for listening to The Look Back. We do appreciate your support. Welcome any feedback and would love it if you would subscribe to this podcast and even consider sharing it with some of your friends. For more information and other cool info, check us out at newmanmediastudios.com.